0: Chapter 13 of A Confession by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Almer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I turn from the life of our circle, acknowledging that ours is not life, but a simulation of life, that the conditions of superfluity in which we live deprive us of the possibility of understanding life, and that in order to understand life I must understand not an exceptional life such as ours who are parasites of life, but the life of simple laboring folk, those who make it life, and the meaning which they attribute to it. The simplest laboring people around me were the Russian people, and I turned to them and to the meaning of life which they gave. That meaning, if one can put it into words, was as follows. Every man has come to the world by the will of God. And God has so made men that man can destroy his soul or save it. The aim of man in life is to save his soul, and to save his soul he must live godly, and to live godly he must renounce all pleasures of life, must labor, humble himself, suffer, and be merciful. That meaning people obtained from the whole teaching of faith transmitted to them by their pastors and by the traditions that live among the people. This meaning was clear to me and near to my heart. But together with this meaning of the popular faith of our non-sectarian folk, among whom I lived, much was inseparably bound up that revolted me and seemed to me inexplicable—sacraments, church services, fasts, and the adoration of relics and icons. The people cannot separate one from the other, nor could I. And strange as much of what entered into the faith of these people was to me I accepted everything and attended the services, knelt morning and evening in prayer, fasted and prepared to receive the Eucharist, and at first my reason did not resist anything. The very things that had formerly seemed to me impossible did not now evoke in me any opposition. My relations to faith before and after were quite different. Formerly life itself seemed to me full of meaning and faith, presented itself as the arbitrary assertion of propositions to me quite unnecessary, unreasonable, and disconnected from life. I then asked myself what meaning those propositions had and convinced that they had none, I rejected them. Now, on the contrary, I knew firmly that my life otherwise has and can have no meaning, and articles of faith were far from presenting themselves to me as unnecessary. On the contrary, I had been led by indubitable experience to the conviction that only these propositions presented by faith give life a meaning. Formerly, I looked on them as some quite unnecessary gibberish, but now, if I did not understand them, I yet knew that they had a meaning, and I said to myself that I must learn to understand them. I argued as follows, telling myself that the knowledge of faith flows, like all humanity with its reason, from a mysterious source. That source is God, the origin both of the human body and the human reason. As my body has descended to me from God, so also has my reason and my understanding of life, and consequently the various stages of development of that understanding of life cannot be false. All that people sincerely believe in must be true. It may be differently expressed, but it cannot be a lie, and therefore if it presents itself to me as a lie, that only means that I have not understood it. Furthermore, I said to myself, the essence of every faith consists in its giving life a meaning which death does not destroy. Naturally, for a faith to be able to reply to the questions of a king dying in luxury, or an old slave tormented by overwork, or of an unreasonable child, of a wise old man or a half-witted old woman, of a young and happy wife, of a youth tormented by passions, of all people in the most varied conditions of life and education, if there is one reply to the one eternal question of life, why do I live and what will result of my life, The reply, though one in its essence, must be endlessly varied in its presentation, and the more it is one, the more true and profound it is, the more strange and deformed must it naturally appear in its attempted expression, comfortably to the education and position of each person. But this argument, justifying in my eyes the queerness of much on the ritual side of religion, did not suffice to allow me in the one great affair of life, religion, to do things in which seemed to me questionable. With all my soul, I wished to be in a position to mingle with the people, fulfilling the ritual side of their religion, but I could not do it. I felt that I should lie to myself and mock all which was sacred to me were I to do so. At this point, however, our new Russian theological writers came to my rescue. According to the explanation these theologians gave, the fundamental dogma of our faith is the infallibility of the Church. From the admission of that dogma follows inevitably the truth of all that is professed by the Church. The Church as an assembly of true believers united by love and therefore possessed of true knowledge became the basis of my faith. I told myself that divine truth cannot be accessible to a separate individual. It is revealed only to the whole assembly of people united by love. To attain truth, one must not be separate, and in order to not separate oneself, one must love and must endure things one may not agree with. Truth reveals itself to love, and if you do not submit to the rights of the Church, you transgress against love, and by transgressing against love, you deprive yourself of the possibility of recognizing the truth. I did not then see the sophistry contained in this argument. I did not see that union in love may give the greatest love, but certainly cannot give us divine truth expressed in the definite words of the Nicene Creed. I also did not perceive that love cannot make a certain expression of truth an obligatory condition of union. I did not then see these mistakes in the argument, and thanks to it was able to accept and perform all the rites of the Orthodox Church without understanding most of them. I then tried with all the strength of my soul to avoid all arguments and contradictions, and tried to explain as reasonably as possible the Church statements I encountered. While fulfilling the rights of the Church, I humbled my reason and submitted to the traditions possessed by all humanity. I united myself with my forefathers, the father, mother, and grandparents that I loved. They and all my predecessors believed and lived, and they produced me. I united myself also with the mission of the common people whom I respected. Moreover, those actions had nothing bad in themselves. Bad, I considered the indulgence of one's desires. When rising early for church services, I knew I was doing well, if only because I was sacrificing my bodily ease to humble my mental pride, for the sake of union with my ancestors and contemporaries, and for the sake of finding the meaning of life. It was the same with my preparations to receive communion, and with the daily reading of prayers with genuflections, and also with the observance of all the fasts. However insignificant these sacrifices might be, I made them not for the sake of something good. I fasted, prepared for communion, and observed the fixed hours of prayers at home and in church, During church service, I attended to every word and gave them a meaning whenever I could. In the Mass, the most important words for me were, Let us love one another in conformity. The furthest words, In unity we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I passed by because I could not understand them. End of chapter 13